Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, Welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. There's going to be a lot of people who are saying, rest in peace, Donald Trump. This is the end of Donald Trump. It's completely misguided, in my opinion. I don't think we've seen any evidence to to support such declarative uh, statements. That's Jonathan Swan. He's a national political correspondent at Axios, covering both the White House and Congress. Swan made a name for himself during the Trump years as one of the most plugged-in reporters in Washington. And he continues to cover the former president closely, including his legal troubles, his planned campaign, and his emerging battle with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. I spoke with Swan on the afternoon of November 9th, less than 24 hours after the polls closed on Election Day. We discussed the early lessons of the midterms and what they mean for Trump, Biden, and the country. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then passed those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Jonathan Swan, welcome back to the show. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So I want to point out to people, because the story is unfolding as we speak, we are recording on Wednesday, November 9th at about 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time. The House has not been called The Senate has not been called. People think the House is leaning one way. There was all this talk about a red wave. Jonathan, as we speak in this moment, without everything being fully understood and certified, what happened to the red wave? 
it didn't materialize. And it wasn't just a red wave. You had people like Ted Cruz declaring it was a red tsunami. Uh, it certainly wasn't. It's a tsunami got downgraded like last <laughs> night about 11 p.m. People saying, oh, it's not a tsunami. Maybe it's a, I don't know, a 20-foot wave. Oh, maybe it's, and, and now at this point, it sort of looks like a trickle into a puddle. A ripple. I think it's a ripple. A ripple might be the way to describe it. Yeah. I, it's As you said, it's still waiting on a lot of California results, which sort of reminiscent of 2018. It looks like Republicans will take back the House, but with a narrow majority. And the Senate is really very up, up for grabs. Uh, we're looking at a very tight race in Nevada, Arizona as well. Uh, Democrats are feeling quite good about beating Blake Masters in the Arizona Senate. And um, Georgia uh, looks like it's going to head to a runoff. Yeah. So yeah, it's um, it's a tight, tight night. Did something change or did the pollsters and pundits just get it wrong? They got it wrong. Yeah. And like, we should sort of pause for a second and say that some were worse than others. I got a text this morning from a senior Republican official and Trump advisor, and they said, if I ever hear the name Robert Cahaley again, I'm going to puke. Who's that? He is the guy who runs the esteemed Trafalgar poll, which ah. basically was just completely inane. It had, you know... Republicans winning by these obscene margins. That's his thing. He always has Republicans winning. But of course, this garbage gets fed to Trump himself. So Trump loves Kahaley's, you know, numbers and polling because it's happy talk. And so part of the story is there is a a, a loop of very bad information that got piped into not just Trump himself, but I think a lot of like senior Republicans were drinking the Kool-Aid. And I'll tell you, not to let them off the hook, like Democrats were very gloomy. And I'm not just talking about like, you know, rank and file members of Congress, but I'm talking about the people who are actually receiving the data, doing the polling, analyzing this stuff. So I'd say that, you know, while Democrats are feeling you know, really good today or, or better than they expected to be feeling, it wasn't because of any great prescience on their behalf. Aren't Democrats by and large, and no, no male please, gloomy about these things? <laughs> and a negative outlook on how their and how their politicians are going to do. They do have that reputation. It's really funny, Preet. Like I was talking to um, so to one of my sources about this, and they were talking about the asymmetry between the two parties, which it doesn't just exist in the obvious ways that we talk about. You know, like Republicans are willing to do things in certain circumstances that Democrats wouldn't entertain. But one of the just of this attitude, you, you just talked about Democrats. You know, generally being kind of. Um, more gloomy. There's also a sort of, uh, I don't know what the right word is. Look at the fundraising emails. Look at the comparison. The Republican fundraising emails are like, you know, give me your money, you traitor. Stand with Mr. <laughs> Trump or we will put you on Don Jr.'s list and we'll line you up and you'll never speak to Trump. You know, Trump will never even look at you again. He hates you. You know, give us your money. You, or, you know, or, you know blah, blah. Democrats are like, I really hate to ask, but you know, I'm humbly requesting that if you could please put in pitch in, you know, da, 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 da. and so you know, and some uh, of them are like disaster. We're going to lose. We're out of money. Well, that's a that's a that's a sort of common fundraising trick. You saw that on the Republican side too, which is like yeah. the sky's falling in. You know, you even saw that with some of these. So there's, there's a bit of a difference there. So, so let's talk about the reaction of one particular individual mm. who has some decisions to make. There was a tweet this morning from Maggie Haberman, who said the following, quote, Trump is indeed furious this morning. 
particularly about Mehmet Oz, and is blaming everyone who advised him to back Oz, including his wife, describing it as not her best decision, end quote. What, in your understanding, is the former president's state of mind? Maggie's right. He's very unhappy about this. And as usual, looking to blame other people. He was furious with Dr. Oz, or as now Trump now calls him, Mehmet Oz, which is a, you know, sort of- That's his the, name. In the same em- emphatic <laughs> way that he says Barack Hussein Obama- um, was he not uh, told? Did Melania not tell him that he was Muslim? Uh, <laughs> Trump was angry with Oz. Basically, he started to have bias remorse almost immediately after he endorsed him because Oz almost lost even with Trump's endorsement. And Trump had to go in and sort of drop a nuclear bomb on Dave McCormick, who was seen as a much more electable candidate by Republicans. Then he gets to the general election and Oz starts distancing him, himself from Trump. And Trump was watching this with a sort of hawk eye, was getting increasingly uh, annoyed by it. And, you know, Oz would do things like refuse to endorse Trump for 2024, et cetera, et cetera. So Trump was already agitated by this. And, you know, he's always looking for someone to blame. Uh, The two people who pushed Oz really hard and and were probably most responsible for getting his, uh, for Trump to endorse him were Sean Hannity on Fox News and uh, Melania, Trump's wife. So, you know, that would explain... Uh, Maggie tweeted there. Well, he never takes personal responsibility. He was seen recently saying, well, if they lose, if they win, I deserve all the credit. If they lose, I deserve no blame. This is just of a piece with that, right? Right. And and what he's also trying to do is in his sort of post-results spin is claim that the people who lost, they lost because they backed away from his claims that the election was stolen. So, you know, in, in Trump's telling, the reason Republicans lost the New Hampshire Senate seat is because this wonderful gentleman who was so strong on election denial in the primary kind of wussed out in the general. And that's why, which is obviously an absurd reading of um, the situation. Do you think Trump or the people around Trump have a concern that this election will be viewed by senior Republicans as a repudiation of Trump or does he never think that way? They 100%. I mean, it's not, do I think that? I mean, th- that is what is happening. They know that. And and the people around him, his core political team are smart. I mean, these are not like, I mean, people like Susie Wiles, Chris Lasavita, Tony Fabrizio, Brian Jack. I mean, these are like smart seasoned political operatives. So like, again, I'm not saying that any of them have told me this, but th- these are smart people who know what's going on and talk to and, and all basically have very broad and deep connections in the Republican Party. So they all know what's going on. Whether Trump himself sort of is going to change any of his plans, like announcing because of this, I don't know. Um, There are certainly people around him who want him to delay his announcement. Uh, As he says, uh, scheduled to make his quote-unquote big announcement uh, on November 15th. There are a number of people around him who want him to delay that until after the Georgia runoff. I don't know whether he does that or not. So let's talk about that. Sure. There was some reporting the day before the election that Trump was really gearing up and was thinking about announcing for 2024, literally on the eve of the midterms. Any truth to that, to your knowledge? He was. No, 100%. So that morning- So why? What's the logic behind that? Well, um, logic. So, (laughs) (laughs) So the morning of election eve, Trump was telling people that I'm just going to do it tonight in Ohio, at the Ohio rally with J.D. Vance. And that set off panic stations um, and various people, including Lindsey Graham, were 
desperately trying to stop Trump from doing that because they were worried that it would energize Democratic voters, you know, and hurt them um, on election day. Ultimately, he was talked off that and ended up doing this, you know, announcing the announcement on that speech, which was sort of, um, you know, uh, you know, I'm going to be making this announcement, but you know, stopped short of doing it. But that no, that was absolutely real. He was worried. His primary concern was him not getting credit for a good night. Uh, everyone was expecting Republicans <laughs> to have a huge night, and Trump was concerned that he wouldn't receive sufficient credit for it. So he wanted to get out in front of that and be able to say, well, they did so well because, you know, of me. My candidates, I announced, right. blah, blah, So blah. suppose he had gotten out ahead of it, uh -huh. and then they had the mediocre and mixed mm -hmm. results that they got. Mm -hmm. That would have been worse for Trump, right? Yes. And we might have been able to say that some people went to the polls and voted for the other guy precisely because Trump had announced. So he, he saved, his people saved him. Yes, his people did. Yep. So knowing his psychology better than many people and the people around him, do you have a prediction on whether or not he changes his mind? Certainly he's not going to change his mind about running. Right? Or do you think even that's in play? I don't know. I, I really try, like, like <laughs> it is so fraught trying to get into this stuff because he really changes his mind so frequently and he can be talked out of certain things if, if he perceives that it's in his self-interest and they present to him that it's in his self-interest. Right. The, the thing you can be certain of is he's, he's not going to do anything because it's in the party's interest. Right. But if do, he is- Do the people around him want him to run or are they just sort of obeying his own interest? Depends- who it's 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 not universal is there a consensus is there a majority who, who no, want him no 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 and i think even again i i don't know this but like i i don't even think you would find a consensus in his own family or in his own head <laughs> his own head perhaps no i think he i think he's pretty set on it i don't think there's much doubt about that but why does why does he want to run again to prove himself for vengeance, to stay out of prison, a combination of those things? <laughs> well, definitely the um, the legal side of things is a reason for him to run. And I've heard, I've, I've talked to several of his advisors over the last few months who say that he thinks being a current political candidate is helpful mm -hmm. in his battles with um, the Justice Department. He's convinced of that. So that's definitely a reason, but I think there's also another reason, which is just he has a burning desire to be back at the center of things and to vindicate himself and have a comeback and be, you know, he's addicted to attention, yeah. addicted to media attention. It's like a, a drug. And so you need ever larger doses of it. And he got the world's biggest dose you could possibly get as president of the United States. And I think it's it's a huge come down to kind of leave that. Uh, so I think that's part of it too. Well, he's got truth social. That's something. Is it though, Green? <laughs> no, it's that was sarcasm. That was sarcasm. Mm. So he also never wants to look weak. And having said yes. that he's going to announce on November 15th, knowing him, how does he put that off? Or I guess he can always come up with some excuse. I mean, that's the reason why I'm still skeptical he'll change his plans, because I do think it, it would be a sign of weakness doing so. So is yeah. one reason for him to announce early based on the people you talk to, to clear the field, scare people away? That was, yes. Yeah. I mean, I mean, a big part of going early was um, Trump was going to, and he was going to put a lot of pressure on people to endorse him. I mean, he's going to, you know, people like Kevin McCarthy, well, you know, they were, you know, potentially going to be in this really difficult position where you had the most powerful person in your party kind of 
berating you to do a public endorsement. And you saw some people preemptively endorse him, like Carrie Lake right, right, said, you right. know, I, yeah, he hasn't even announced yet. And she, she endorsed him. Running for governor in, in Arizona. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think the, one of the biggest consequences of last night is he can't clear the field now. It has emboldened his rivals. So who, okay, so let's go through this. I know people yeah. are going to be listening, thinking, we don't even know about 2022 results yet. And sure. already you're talking about 2024. But look, 2024 is important and 2022 affects 2024. So in your estimation, who doesn't get out at this point? Who doesn't get out? Yeah, in other words, who will, will put their hat in even if Trump puts his hat in? Oh, look, I, I know the people who are thinking very, very seriously about challenging Trump. Who are they? Ron DeSantis, mm-hmm. Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, Glenn Youngkin. Those are uh, Chris Christie. Okay. All of, do you agree with me that all of those are ridiculous other than DeSantis? No, I don't agree with you on that. I don't think Pence, ridic- Pence is ridiculous, isn't it? I don't think it's ridiculous. Who is who is Mike Pence's? I, I mean, I'm not saying I'm not saying he's going to win. And and, and by yeah. the way, like like I've spent enough time in politics to like really just not write people off yeah, because okay. I've just seen enough. Um, I I think he was the sitting vice president, and like I do think he's got some following. I again, I'm not predicting that he can. I, I think he, he he's going to be a very hard road to yeah to travel for him. Uh, but even DeSantis, like, you know, I, I think everyone's very, very high on DeSantis and they should be. You know, he had a huge thumping victory. And they should be why, yeah. So describe from your perspective, for people who weren't following Florida yeah. so closely, what his accomplishment was in Florida. Well, Florida has just become a deep red state. It's it's transformed. And, and, and what DeSantis has done is kind of remarkable. Um, he's won counties that you just wouldn't have ever imagined, you know, three, four years ago would go red and and has made huge inroads with Hispanics across across the state. So um, he's turned Florida from a toss-up state into just an absolutely, you know, thumping, thumping victory. And he's done so by being very conservative, picking every culture war issue and, you know, turning it into policy and being sort of unapologetic about it. So yeah, no wonder he's seen as um, a, a front runner. That being said, he still never actually faced the kind of test that Trump will pose for him. Trump is going to be completely unrestrained in his attacks on Ron DeSantis. I mean, he's already started, right? So let's talk he about that. He started in a very gentle way. It's going to he get- He referred to him as, well, let's go through it. He refers to him as Ron DeSanctimonious, got a laugh right. from the crowd at his rally. What's the strategy for Ron DeSantis? In responding, like that's what I don't get. How does he even respond? Well, he's he's responded in probably the best possible way, which is to win say nothing, race. win his race, and then to absolutely <laughs> outpace Trump in Florida on a scale that's just you just can't uh, quarrel with it. So he just um, has so, to grin and bear the insults and the slights. I don't think that's sustainable. Um, I think at some point, particularly for Republican primary voters who want to see toughness, um, at some point, you know particularly if Trump starts, you know, talking about his wife, things like that. I mean, he, he Trump said something to the effect of the other day to reporters, I know more about him than anyone besides his wife, maybe his wife. And so, da, da, da. so if Trump starts doing a bit more of the wife stuff, you know, like it's sort of probably not tenable for, um, for Ron DeSantis to stay quiet, but that's obviously know, his for strategy. Ted, it, it's worked for Ted Cruz. Uh, has it though? <laughs> well, I don't know. He, He's still he's still in the Senate. Uh, he's still in the Senate. It's are true. there are there signs that within the Republican establishment? I don't just mean uh-huh. elected officials, but also the conservative media establishment, Fox News, yeah. and, and other places. Are you detecting any kind of shift 
away from Trump and towards DeSantis? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, among, among Republican that, elites. Yeah. Well, the shift has already happened, mm -hmm. right? The shift, the shift happened about a year and a half ago. It started to happen. Murdoch turned against Trump. You start to see very uh, negative coverage of Donald Trump in the New York Post and the Wall Street Journal editorial side of things. That's been going on for a long time. Um, Fox News in the daytime hours has been turning against Trump and boosting DeSantis. Um, you've seen uh, a shift in tone in their morning Fox and Friends uh, show with Steve Ducey becoming quite anti-Trump. And, and so you're seeing the shift happen. What hasn't shifted yet, and I don't know whether it will, is the the really important piece of the Fox real estate, which is prime time. Um, you haven't seen Laura Ingram, Sean Hannity, or Tucker Carlson turn on Trump, and and I think if you do see that, that will be meaningful with Republican primary voters. And then you've got the sort of conservative elite. You know the donor the donor community is is with DeSantis. I mean the the big end donor community. They, they, they've had enough of Trump largely. Now, not many of them are brave enough to come out and say that yet, um, except for Ken Griffin, uh, who who right. is, a, is a big deal donor who's done that. But you may start to see now more donors emboldened to come out and sort of say, we need to move on from Trump. But a lot of these guys still have scar tissue from 2016 where they threw everything. You know, a lot of these donors spent quite a bit of money trying to beat Trump and, and got humiliated. So they're quite reticent to do that. Um, and then you've got these sort of conservative influencer activists who, you know, there, there are some of them who um, have already sided with DeSantis, but there's still a fear of really, uh, there's still a lot of people who are privately against Trump, but afraid of going against him publicly because there is a disconnect between Republican elite opinion and the base. Yeah. There just is. Yeah. And and I, I, I constantly talk to these Republicans in DC, the sort of professional Republican consultant class, who, you know, they've got their views and whatever. And, and None of them were there, you know, I was, you know, whatever, six, two weeks, two months ago, you know, in the uh, stadium arena in, in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, 10,000 people packed the rafters, fervent Trump fans yeah. and, and, you know, just complete different universe. So he still has a very, very strong base. And there's going to be a lot of people who are saying, you know, the, rest in peace, Donald Trump. This is the end of Donald Trump. Um, it's, it's completely misguided in my opinion i don't think we've seen any evidence to to support such declarative uh statements you don't see any fatigue in trump's base in his base not a huge amount no. um not a huge amount it's not coming through i mean th there has been a little bit of slippage but the, the the strongest fatigue is among republican elites is there anyone that the trump people are more worried about than desantis no and who are they worried about second most I don't hear him worried about anyone second most. So if there was no DeSantis, Trump would likely just trot to the nomination, right? You just never know. And again, like, I, yeah. I, I, I'm sorry to be annoying, but I just no, like- No, smart. I've seen enough. Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> you just- You can't say I, just, I like, told truly, you so in two years. No, no, but but it's also just like, you know, things change. and and But that's certainly their view anyway. The, the only person that they see right now as a really serious threat is Ron DeSantis. Do you think they're already thinking about, and then we'll talk about other things. Do you think that the Trump folks are already thinking about a running mate? No, he's not. I mean, this is another thing that I think has been misreported. Yeah. Trump doesn't think he needs a VP. He's not like Trump sitting around saying, 
oh, who who do I need who's going to help me win with, you know, Hispanic women? Or He doesn't think, like, Trump thinks he's- Is that your Trump great- voice, Jonathan? Is that your Trump no, voice? No, no, it's not. <laughs> Shit, there's crappy Australia. Um, that was, that was- Trump, thinks, Trump thinks he's the greatest political candidate that's ever existed in, yeah. in world history. And the idea of a vice president is sort of an inconvenience. And he doesn't want someone who's going to upstage him um, or try to upstage him. He wants someone who's completely loyal. Um, so- I think he's not really drawing up lists or thing. I think it's very premature that conversation about a running mate. Um, so all Trump. this, so all this conjecture among the talking heads about yeah, Carrie Lake and Nikki. Haley. It's just conjecture. It's just conjecture. And there's he likes her. He thinks she's great. Which she, I mean, one? He likes there's which a, one? He thinks Carrie Lake's yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. Um. And and there's a good. I, I understand why people think she might be SVP. She might be. But I think it's it's conjecture rather than reporting. Is there any universe in which instead of there being this fight or at least a forever fight between DeSantis and Trump. They team up on a ticket. Nope. Like like Kennedy, no and, Kennedy and Johnson, because it's happened don't before. Don't see it. I think that's- Because, because really of Trump. Yes. Because of Trump's intransigence on it. I don't know that DeSantis would want that either, but um, I, I, I just don't know. But um, I don't see Trump, I don't see a universe in which Trump picks DeSantis as his VP. Who's the Democrat that the Trump folks are most concerned about? Is it Biden or someone else? That's a good question. I don't ever hear them express concern about the Democrats, to be honest with you. I think that they look at the Democratic field and see a lot of weakness and problems. I think that they see Biden as a very, very weak incumbent president and Harris as Trump's dream, I think, would be to run against Kamala Harris in a general election. So I never hear them, I never hear them fret about a Democrat. Might they fret a little bit more after the mixed results from the midterms or no? They might. I just haven't got any reporting to share on that. Like I haven't heard anything from them on that. We'll be right back with my conversation with Jonathan Swan after this. What are some of the other races that you think people are most surprised about in this midterm? Well, I think Republicans are generally surprised by the softness of their performance. Pennsylvania was disastrous, not unexpectedly so at the gubernatorial level, but you know, the the Senate there was um they they underperformed expectations. New Hampshire was a complete dumpster fire. Uh again, not a complete shock, but the scale of it I think was a shock. They, they expected to do better in um Georgia with Herschel Walker. They expected to do, I, I mean, they're still hopeful in Nevada with Laxalt. But Wait, they, they, they really expected to do that much better in yes. Georgia, uh-huh. given how uh-huh. poor a candidate, I think, consensus tells us. Yeah, because they were so, they, they thought the environment was so good that, and, and Kemp was running so strongly that that they thought that Herschel- Well, he decisively come. beat Stacey Abrams. Yes, he did. And people split, people split their vote. That's right. And they didn't think that there would be as much of that as they ended up being. So that's almost certainly going to run off Warnock and, and Walker. Yeah, that looks. That's what it looks like. Yeah, without Kemp on the ballot in a runoff, and without the independent candidate, is there an assessment about who that favors? I don't know. That's going to be like the most expensive runoff in American oh my history. It'll be you know, <laughs> for Warnock hun- oh, totally has like, to keep running the, the, <laughs> and again and again. I mean, you just can't even imagine how much money get, will get spent in that uh, if it's if it's deciding the Senate. It's just stunning amounts of money. They were very. Uh, surprised in the 
underperformance in Arizona. Yeah, talk about Arizona for a moment. Although, Carrie, like what I'm the latest I'm hearing, like an hour before we talked, is there's still a decent chance that Carrie Lake wins at the gubernatorial the, the, the level. Governorship. And what about the what about the Senate? Race? The Senate's looking better for Democrats. They're cautiously optimistic um, that Kelly's going to hang on, uh, but it's close. Yeah. So the, so Nevada, sorry, Arizona. Pause on Arizona um, for one more second. Yeah. That's the race in which the Democrat, Katie Hobbs, refused to debate. Did that make mm -hmm. any sense to you? Uh, uh, this is not my opinion. This is Democrat's opinion, was that she might have been the worst candidate that they put up anywhere at that level. Just completely inept at public advocacy. And, and leadership. Oh, those are not important qualities for someone running for statewide office. But maybe it was the right tactical decision. Yeah. Um, it might have ended up being, you know, she did, she did better than people expected. And perhaps if she stood next to the person who's had 25, 26 years of daily training on local television um, and got completely annihilated, that might have harmed her. You know, they obviously made a tactical decision that it was better to um, take the hits on not debating than actually be seen debating. Right. It was the opposite um, decision, a strategic decision from Pennsylvania. Right. John Fetterman, who's still suffering the effects of a stroke, right. chose to debate. And a lot of people question that. Do you have a view on, mm -hmm. on that decision? I mean, ultimately he won. So maybe it was yeah. a good decision. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he benefited hugely from having Mast Mastriano was just such a drag on that ticket. Um, and oh, in the, uh, the governor's race helped the governor's the race, race. And Shapiro was so strong. Yeah. I mean, talk about. I mean, he's a potential. I mean, he's a potential presidential candidate. He he just did so so well. So yeah, look, I don't know. Um, that that debate was obviously not good for Fetterman, but maybe debates don't matter as much as we think they do. They may not. And, you know, you mentioned. Shapiro in Pennsylvania as a future yeah. star. Any other future stars? My mind goes to yeah. I think Whitmer's in really, Michigan. Yeah, for prevailing. Yeah. What about? Well, tell me about Whitmer, and then I want you to to, to say no, something. No, I just about think she's a very compelling. Look, the, the the truth about this moment right now in politics is, unfortunately, I think it's not great for like anyone. But it, it, a lot of it just comes down to television performance and social media and you know what you look like on screen and what what you how you perform um in 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 the media and she's she's a very strong performer and like <laughs> that goes a long way it just does now so for that reason alone not to mention her opponent was actually seen as a pretty good candidate um and she you know yeah she she that's convincingly not, won it's not always you know I, the counter example i think of and i was talking yeah. about him earlier today was the governor uh, the, you know, the, the reelected governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, mm -hmm. who is not particularly telegenic or amazing on television. He's kind of a boring, technocratic, right. moderate guy. And he outperformed J.D. Vance. In a state that's just, you know, deep, deep red. And, and J.D. Vance, J.D. Vance's challenges were widespread. I mean, it, it's kind of amazing. I suppose it happened because Trump endorsed him. But like, he had so many problems with Republican uh, base voters initially because of his uh, litany of public condemnations of Donald Trump, you know, in very kind of vivid terms. So he had to overcome that. Um, Tim Ryan is a very good candidate as well, by the way. Like excellent. That, He's excellent. That, that should not be underestimated. Tim Ryan, I, you know, Republicans anyway, I, I don't know, I haven't talked to enough Democrats about this to, to know, but I'll just tell you like senior Republicans people running a lot of big races considered Tim Ryan to be one of the best candidates anywhere that Democrats were running. So, 
actually, I think J.D. Vance did fine. But it's interesting about Ohio yeah. because yeah. there's a guy named Sherrod Brown. Right. Who's pretty liberal. Who right. Live, who, who wins in that red state and a pretty good candidate also. And Tim Ryan couldn't do what Sherrod Brown is able to do every six years. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see the next time he has to come. Sherrod Brown has such a distinct brand. Yeah. I mean, he's just, you know, he's almost sui generis. Like, it, it's like talking about Joe Manchin in West Virginia kind of thing. So, yeah, Like John Tester in, in Montana. Yeah, yeah. He's just got, he's got, there are a few, uh, Susan Collins in Maine, like there are a few politicians that have this extremely distinct brand and can overcome just basic kind of political dynamics, generic ballot dynamics, you know, yeah. pure partisanship. Any other any other stars on the Republican or Democratic side? The person I wanted to mention is Wes Moore, first mm. black governor in Maryland. Anyone else strike you as, as a future person? I think Spamberger is really like winning again and it's such a tough um, environment. I don't know what her future holds, but People are very impressed by her. So she's someone who's who's on my radar. But yeah, like the the, the names I hear most are Shapiro, uh, Shapiro and Whitmer, um, uh, for sure. I want to go ahead and talk about 2024 again for a minute. Do you think people have learned, the people who might choose to challenge Donald Trump, have they learned something about the most effective way to debate him? Or is he just not really debatable? It's a really good question. I, it's, it's funny, when I talk to his perspective, some of his perspective rivals, you can see that they're like, I've had conversations with, well, one of his rivals anyway, um, where they've like played out scenes in the debate. Like you could tell they're fantasizing about debating him and like they've thought through, you know, all these Are you talking things. about Chris Christie? I couldn't possibly comment. Um, <laughs> um, that sounds uh, like Chris Christie. Uh, well, you can say that. I, I'm not, yeah, I'm not I'm sharing gonna say that. anything. I'm going to say that. So yes, some people have been thinking about that. And, and, and you know, um, I often hear different strategies, you know, of of what what would work and what not. Most of it's just gut instinct. It's not being polled or anything like that. Like I often hear this refrain, um, which is just to say you're a loser, you lose. You know, the, the the party lost the house, they lost the Senate, you lost the White House. You know, who else could have lost to Joe Biden? You know, yeah. blah blah. What's blah. Trump's response? To um, it's a you know. <laughs> that's I think that's why people think that's quite yeah. a potent um, line, and probably the person who's best positioned to deliver that is Ron DeSantis at yeah. this point because he's, um, he's a winner. That victory, whether you like it or not, right. he is right. There's also the other thing I hear from some Republicans uh, who potentially would challenge him is they do see an opening to go at him fr from the right, which is and and what that looks like is to say, you know, you were too eager to listen to Anthony Fauci, you shut the government down, you let all these criminals out of prison because you were you listened to woke Jared Kushner. Um, you know, all these drug dealers, we've got a fentanyl problem and, you know, you let all these, you know, you pardoned a drug trafficker. Oh, by the way, all these woke generals you complain about, you're the one who promoted them. You know, there's that kind of a line. I don't know whether that works or not, but that's certainly something I hear Republicans toss around as a possible, you know, attack against Trump. Let me ask you another version of the question of whether people have learned how to debate Trump and it's whether you've learned or the press corps has learned over the last five, six, seven years, the best way to interview a politician who may not be forthcoming and truth-telling. You and I have had a couple of conversations that have been very interesting about the best way to interview somebody, mm. being respectful, mm. but, but pinning them down. Mm. And I think you're one of the best in the business when it comes to live interviews of, of powerful people. How have you thought about that? How have you evolved in, in your thinking about how to do that? I think the first decision is whether you interview them or not. And 
that's actually a really important decision. It's it, what's the purpose of you? What am I actually trying to accomplish by doing this interview? And once you've answered that question, you just have to really prepare. I mean, seriously prepare because it's just, you're dealing with someone who is just going to like, you talk about Trump, he doesn't really answer questions. You know, you could ask him any question about, you know, present any evidence you want about, you know, there being, yes, no, it turns out that the Iranians were not inside the Dominion machines and, you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and he will just assert, no, have you seen the the video of the Italian satellites and did it? Well, no, that's yeah, not and true. you can't you argue. Up, you, you, you end up in this, yeah. it just becomes this like, it's a. It's like well, you know, you're whacking down. He puts up another one. Or what about the suitcases under the table? And and at some point, you think to yourself, what, what's the point? I mean, what, what's the point of this? What, what purpose am I serving um, by conducting this? So, um, I think the first thing is to kind of think through. Well, is there something that he hasn't been pressed on, hasn't been held accountable on, that's actually worthwhile trying to do that? Or am I just kind of giving a platform to someone to steamroll through and say what he's going to say and whatever? And, you know, those are not easy decisions. And um, is there someone on the scene at this moment, Trump or otherwise, who you would not interview for that reason? No, (laughs) I kind of, no, like, like probably not. I mean, I'd love to interview Carrie Lake. I think there's a way to do that. And, and, and I mean, she's probably the best example. And I've seen people shy away from interviewing her because, you know, she declares all sorts of things that are false um, about the 2020 election. And she's extremely good at it. I mean, if you do uh, local television every day for 20 plus years, you're going to get good at it. And she's um, also naturally good at it. And and so I think there's an intimidation factor there, but I do think there's a way to interview her with facts, soberly, kind of thinking through lines of questioning, et cetera. So there's no one I can think of that I, I wouldn't interview. I mean, th- there is probably t- to the extent that like, you know, um, do you want to, I mean, I remember looking back at, um, old Mike Wallace interviews when he had this show, uh, called Nightbeat, which was before he started 60 minutes. And it was this really amazing, awesome, uh, interview show. It was kind of pioneered television interviewing in the way that we understand it now, sort of nasty questions, adversarial, but really yeah. sharp and smart. And it was this set, it was under really bright, unforgiving lights and you could close up, you'd see the faces sweat. He interviewed um, like a grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan on that show. And they're there with the that pointy hat on and whatever. So like, would I interview someone like that who's just going to like spew absolute bile and whatever? Probably not. I, I don't know that there's much of a public interest reason to do that. So you do make, you know, decisions like that. But in terms of like powerful people and people who are running for office and who are in office, I don't rule anyone out. Um, I wouldn't have any, I, I refuse to interview this person okay. because they- So once you decide, you know, so once you make the decision yeah. to interview someone, in your case, it's most people. Uh-huh, yeah. Do you have a particular strategy that you employ? Yeah, yeah. I think through what's the point of this interview? What's the purpose of this interview? And if I can't answer that question, I won't request the interview. Once I've answered that question, there's usually some line of questioning that I think of as the heart of the interview. What's the thing that like, if I could do nothing else, if I could just ask one line of questioning, what would that be? With Mitch McConnell, who I interviewed earlier this year, the heart of that interview, and it ended up being, I think, pretty exceptional interview, immodestly, was me teasing out with him the contradiction or the tension between him giving this very impassioned speech on the Senate floor, um, saying that Trump was practically and morally responsible for the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, 
And then two weeks later, going on Fox News and saying that he would absolutely support Donald Trump if he's the Republican nominee in 2024. Yeah. And I thought through that line of questioning very deeply. Um, and McConnell said, you know, I don't think it's any great surprise that you know, the leader of the Republican Party would support the Republican. And I said, I think it's astonishing after saying that. And, and, and what I'd never seen before from anyone interviewing Mitch McConnell, and I watched all the tape, you know, everyone asked when they interview McConnell, they ask the same, it's all about legislative strategy. What's going to happen with Build Back Better? I mean, who gives a crap what's going to happen? Like, he's not going to support Build Back Better. You know, why don't you think a bit bigger than that and think about some of these questions that maybe they've got a moral dimension to them. Maybe there's something that ordinary people, if they would sit in front of him, you're the representative of normal people out there and you think to yourself, well, if they were sitting in this chair, what would they want to ask if they were here? It's it's a really great responsibility, actually, when, you, when, you're, when you're lucky enough to get that access to a, a powerful person and you're sitting there and you've got this precious time with them. So every line of questioning matters. Every line of questioning burns up five minutes, 10 minutes. And then before you know it, the interview's over. And you probably, if you've done a decent job of it, you may never get another chance to interview them ever again. I mean, I think I'm a very fair interview. I don't do cheap shots. I, I don't do stuff that's gimmicky. And I and I think I do it in a way that's respectful, very respectful, as you should be. You shouldn't be disrespectful to people who you're interviewing, no matter who they are. But you know, the fact is when you do a tough interview with someone, it's harder to book interviews in the future. <laughs> so um, that's a problem that I've... Well, you, you use a, you use a yeah. technique that, that I've commented on before and that we use in trial. And uh, I think you'd be a great trial lawyer. And that is the, just the simple approach of asking a question and when you don't get an answer, you just, you just ask the same question again. Right. And you don't get an answer, you ask the same question again. It's very effective and it, it makes people squirm because their evasiveness is put on display. So I think that's a good thing that you do. And you, and you use silence... Silence is such an underused tool in um, television interviewing. It's an incredibly effective tool because most people, not all people, most people become incredibly uncomfortable in silence and feel the need to fill the space. Um, and that's sometimes when you get your most interesting um, material is when you shut your mouth and you just let it breathe for a moment. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> I was employing your technique. It's good. In real, in real time. Were you, feeling were you getting nervous, Jonathan? I actually was. Were you, yeah, I was getting just, nervous. Were you fretting yeah. a little bit? Yeah, I was like, what do I say now? <laughs> that <laughs> was kind of fresh. I'm going to use that a lot more often. I'm going to just be silent. People like, yeah. No, but in the modern day, because we're not in person, you just say, like, I think you hit mute by accident. It's hard to tell the difference between strategic use of silence and the accidental pushing of mute. Mm. Mm. Is there a favorite interview that you've done and or a least favorite interview you've done? I mean, I'd be lying if I didn't say that the, the famous Trump interview in 2020 was my favorite. It was my favorite interview because it it just reached so many people, had such an impact. I think they figured out that 100 million people ended up watching all or part of that interview it was in terms of sharing and, and different clips and things like that. So, um, and I would just, it was just astonishing. It had global reach. It was an incredible interview, uh, but other interviews that I've really felt that I've uh, done as well. Basically, most interviews I walk away with disappointed with myself. That I, I look back and I watch the tape, I think oh, I missed this opportunity. I missed. And my dad's um, a very good interviewer back in Australia, and he, you know, sort of probably in some ways, I've got his voice in my head a little bit as well uh, in terms of being critical of myself. Interviews where I've walked away thinking, you know, I did a really good job. Donald Trump. Jared Kushner in 2019, um, Imran Khan 
in Pakistan last year that actually caused street protests. People were protesting at um, what he said about women, basically blaming them for being sexually assaulted, for wearing provocative clothing. Um, that was a very well-executed interview. Mitch McConnell, um, the Chinese ambassador who I did in 20, uh, 2019, I think, or 2020, that was a really strong interview. So those are probably some of my favorites, but my least favorite interview is just when they're programmed and talking points, like Tom Perez. I mean, good Lord. Like, <laughs> I just like... Say something former real, labor, man. Yeah, president. it's like, good, my God. The people who are just so programmed, you just cannot get them to say anything that's not pre-scripted talking points. Um, you just think, well, what am I, this is pointless for everyone involved. So there's been a few of them, but I don't want to start listing them because okay. I don't want to that's, offend people. You can tell, you can tell me after um, we, we, we hit the yeah. stop button. We've got to let you go, but, but how do you think this has gone? I don't think this is my best, but it's not my worst. I think he could have been tougher on me, honestly. Yeah, you know, this is in the nature of sort of a postmortem of the election. Yeah, we'll yeah. have you back, and I can. Yeah, be, I think I can you can do something tougher. more more adversarial. Yeah. Would you like that? No, I, honestly, I would hate it. Why? I probably wouldn't go on. Would you, would, no, you, would you agree to be interviewed by someone who's like you? I wouldn't want to be interviewed in general. Like, I don't do many of these things. These podcasts, I like. You know, um, you like to be I the one asking the questions. Yeah, like, like it's, I don't think it's like good for me to be sort of talking about myself or like, it's just not a good thing. Like I'm, I'm not scared of being interviewed, but I just think inherently when you're sitting down talking for long periods of time and you're a reporter, it's bad and dangerous. Um, and I've probably said something stupid in this conversation. No, that, no, no. You know, no. I'll regret. No, so. I don't, I don't think so. Uh, okay. And I think you did a fine job. All right. Thanks. Mate. Jonathan Swan, keep it up. We'll talk. Thanks, soon. Matt. Appreciate it. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Jonathan Swan. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669 247 7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Sean Walsh, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.